The following sermon was preached by me, Jeremiah Cox, at the Elm Street Church of Christ in El Reno, Oklahoma. It is my prayer that you are edified by this study, and I encourage you to test all things by the Word of God. We'll be starting this evening in Second Peter chapter 3, if you want to turn over there. Second Peter chapter 3. Uh, just very quickly, I did want to remind uh, the men of the, the last study uh, in our training study, our training class, that'll be on the 8th, which is this Saturday, and we'll be covering the last lesson in that. So just a reminder and an encouragement um, for us to be there for that. Um, 2 Peter chapter 3 is where we'll be in a moment. I think it's true, and we can all agree, that there are many good things, whatever it may be, that if they are misused, can actually have the adverse effects. They can be bad or negative. Um, there are so many examples of this that we could give. One that kept coming to my mind is just the general concept of medicine. There are a lot of different medicines that are out there, and they're, they're there, and they've been discovered and invented and, and formulated and all that kind of stuff and honed in and, and narrowed down to where they benefit us greatly in various ways, whether it be a treatment of an illness or a, a treatment of an injury or a treatment of, of a disease, whatever it may be, there are various medicines that can be applied to those matters which have great and positive benefits and can, can cure some things as well, if not but just comfort us in those times of, of difficulties. But some medicines especially, uh, more potent than others, if they're not administered in the proper way or if they're not given um, for the proper reasons, they are misused and abused and and the purpose of that medicine is not understood and so it's given to someone who doesn't need it or to someone who's actually allergic to it or whatever it may be that that thing that's very good taken out of its proper context and usage can actually have the adverse effect and can many times be fatal in nature and so a good thing is only good as it's used properly as its purpose is understood and as its administration is within its own realm of limitations that have been discovered and that have been given uh, perhaps by a possible standard. The same is true for the best thing that has ever been introduced to mankind, and that's the gospel. Romans 1 and verse 16 says, The gospel is the power of God to salvation. What can be better than that? It's good news that saves mankind from their sins, that gives them the hope of an eternal life with the Creator in heaven. James one twenty one says that the implanted Word is able to save our souls. And in other passages, we read the abundant truth that the Gospel is purely good. It's authored by one who is purely good, and its purpose is purely good and positive. And it is 100% effective and the lives of every single person who would submit to every facet of the gospel, it saves everyone, is what Romans 1.16 says. Everyone who believes, the Jew and also the Greek. There is not a person who cannot be saved by the gospel, who is too far gone and past saving, or who just differs a little bit. It's not like medicine. Medicine may save a lot of people 
and then the person who has the same problems, maybe it doesn't save that person for whatever reason. The gospel is 100% effective. The reason it won't save everyone is because not everyone applies it properly. Some individuals take the gospel, and even though it's very good and powerful, they actually twist it and warp it to their own destruction. That's what Second Peter chapter 3 talks about. In verse 15 of that chapter, the Apostle Peter says, Consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the Scriptures. We take verse 15 and the end of verse 16 and we can reason logically that Paul's writings are defined as scripture. They are the writings ultimately of an inspired man. They, as First Peter or Second Peter chapter 1 talk about, they're not a man's private interpretation, but they come from God. God is speaking to us through the writings of these men who were chosen by him and who were inspired by his spirit. That's the content of 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16, speaking of the gospel message through the pen of the Apostle Paul that is inspired. And these things that pertain to our salvation, specifically the long-suffering of our Lord is our salvation, verse 15, are actually being abused and twisted to the destruction of the souls of some. And so what they do ultimately is they have a warped view of the gospel's intent or purpose. They're individuals who take a message and they apply it in a way it's not meant to be applied or they teach it in a way that's not meant to be taught. And by doing that, they actually turn it into something else that actually is fit for their destruction and not their salvation. I think we can see the reason why there in Second Peter 3 and verse 16, he calls them untaught people, which simply means they're ignorant, they're unlearned, they don't know the gospel's purpose. Similarly to that, in First Timothy 1 and verse 7, there are false teachers who desire to be teachers of the law, but they understand neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. They're teaching something they don't even know themselves. And what that does is it, 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 it provides an unstable platform in that person's life. They themselves are unstable because they're untaught. These men who twist the scriptures to their own destruction are untaught and therefore unstable. It's from a compound word in the Greek, from a negative to Sterizo, which means to fix. And we fix something in place. It's fixed. It's, it's there. It's solid. And this is the negative of that. Or unstable. Unsteadfast. And it's the result of ignorance. The result of being untaught. Now when a man is untaught, therefore that person is unstable. And they take God's word, especially the meat, like is referred to in Second Peter 3 and verses 15 and 16 then chances are they're going to misunderstand that. They're not going to be able to properly discern the truth that is in it, and therefore they're not going to be able to properly apply it. What happens is, according to Peter, by inspiration, they twist that scripture to their own destruction. It's from a Greek word which means to twist or to torture. It's from a compound word which, or a word which means a winch or an instrument of torture akin to a word strepho, which means to turn. Arton Gingrich says it means to distort a statement so that a false meaning results, twist, distort. And the result is not salvation. Even though that's the original message they took, now they've twisted it, they've, they've mis, misunderstood its purpose perhaps, even if it's a 
If it's an honest mistake and in doing so because they're untaught, therefore unstable, the result is their own destruction. Galatians chapter 1 warns of those who take the gospel and twist it into something that it never intended to be. He told the Galatians in Galatians 1 and verse 6, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you to in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another. But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. That's the same concept as twisting it. And he warns them, even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what we have, you have received, let him be accursed. Some create, as Paul mentions, another gospel, which is really not a gospel at all. They bring a different message contrary to the scriptures, but their, their message contrary to the scriptures has undertones of the scriptures in it. It is the scripture that is twisted. Some people twist our words and it makes us angry and rightly so. People all over twist God's words and the result is ultimately the destruction of souls. There are obviously some warp or twisted views of what purpose the gospel serves. Contrary to what we very clearly read in passages like we alluded to earlier, Romans 1.16, it's the power of God to salvation. It saves us from our souls. It's not doesn't have any other purpose. There are some byproducts to that, but some people, they view the gospel and then they abuse it because their view is contrary to what the scripture describes. I want to consider just a few this evening, some warped views of the gospel of Christ which will inevitably lead to the destruction of those who hold those views. One warped view that some people have concerning the gospel, and they may not word it this way, they may not fully realize that this is, this is what their perspective actually is, but they view the gospel as a, a way of escape from reality. They, they view the gospel as a way of escaping from all the conflicts and negatives of life. They can avoid adversity and trials because the gospel just offers a life of of health and wealth, which is actually a movement, of course, we're familiar with. And then you see some people, they, they kind of take it that similar direction by simply romanticizing the gospel. I've, I've heard it put that way, and I think that's a good way of, of putting it, where they view the gospel as something that is fluffy and, and lighthearted, and it's, it's a place apart from the grit and grime of this life. They romanticize the gospel. Everything's going to be good and well. People are going to just get along. Things are going to be easier. Everything's going to work out if you just trust in Jesus. And it's going to be this grand and, and pure and wonderful life. And while it's nothing wrong with that, looking at the gospel in a positive perspective, what is wrong is to try to put the gospel on a level that is separate and apart from what we know to be real life. The gospel is not an escape from reality, but it's actually God's way of allowing us to be informed of reality. What is life really like? And how do we deal with it, especially in our purpose of fearing God and keeping his commandments? It doesn't offer us an escape from all of the troubles and the grit and grime of this life, but it actually calls us to confront them, things like sin. And the people who view the gospel through this distorted purpose, this misunderstanding, they might not understand what they're seeing is, is sin, but that's exactly what it is. All the evil in this life, things like death and hate and loss and hardship, just evil, things contrary to God. The gospel isn't meant 
for us to have an escape from that in this life, but in the next. The gospel is meant for us to deal with it now and approach it in the way God wants us to approach it. As I mentioned before, the gospel makes us confront those negative matters, confront real life. God's not trying to, you know, beat around the bush with us. He's very straight with us. And the life of a Christian is not meant as an escape from reality where we kind of put on these blinders and ignore what is really right in front of us. In Acts the 14th chapter, I think we see a great example of that with the Apostle Paul. When the Jews from Antioch in verse 19 and Iconium came there, and having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. However, when the disciples, it continues, gathered around him, he rose up and went into the city. And the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith and saying, we must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. The man who was just stoned and left for dead continued his preaching journey, telling the people he came into contact with that this is reality. And not only is it reality, but God calls us to confront it and go through it. We must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. It's not an escape from this. It's a confrontation with this and the way that is joined with God's will. James 1 addresses this in verse 2. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. That concept of falling into various trials shows the time and chance of life and the fact that these things will happen and they will happen unexpectedly. Bad things happen to Christians. That's reality. That's life. And the gospel, like James 1 tells us how to deal with them. Count it all joy. You know, the gospel is very upfront with us. It doesn't offer an escape from reality, but it actually tells true stories about people that actually never got out of those trials, never got out of the adversity. Their life under the sun never got better. Remember the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16 that there was a certain beggar in contrast to the rich man who fared sumptuously every day. Lazarus, he was full of sores and laid at the rich man's gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. And dogs came and licked his sores, but the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. This indicates that Lazarus, whenever this bad journey started, whenever his life went downhill, it never ended after that. He always had sores. He always was the beggar, and he died in that state. Sometimes it just doesn't get better. That's reality. Sometimes things just don't go away. But here's the good part of the story. In James 1, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Blessed is the man who endures temptation or trial. For when he has been approved, you will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. The gospel isn't about romanticizing life and making things just easy and escaping from all of those struggles, but it's about confronting them and dealing with them appropriately. The gospel doesn't want us to be naive. It doesn't want us to be ignorant. It doesn't want us to escape real life. It wants us to know what real life is and confront it. Some would like to believe that if we just follow Jesus, everyone's going to get along with us. How in the world could people be mad at us for following in the steps of the Son of God, for, for loving our neighbor as ourselves? How, how in the world could someone hate us for that? And I just don't understand why people have problems with 
the life of a Christian. I'm not causing anyone harm. And that's the misunderstanding of the gospel. It's not about that. It's it's actually telling us what real life with Christ is going to be like. In John 15 and verse 18, Jesus said, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. This isn't about escaping adversity. It's actually about having more adversity put upon you. If you are of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. Remember, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. The Apostle Paul himself de- dealt with this adversity in 2 Timothy 4 and verse 16. He said, at my first defense, no one stood with me, but all forsake me. May it not be charged against them. But he understood that the gospel actually was purposed toward these exact kind of situations of maintaining faith when no one else stands with you because the Lord stood with me, Paul says, and strengthened me. That's what matters. It helps us to address the ugliness of life as we seek to live for Christ. What the gospel doesn't do is give us a picture of the walk with Jesus that is an easy stroll, a cakewalk, but it shows it to be messy. It shows it to be hard, and it calls us to endure Endure through self-discipline. Like Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 24, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. They do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore, I run thus, not with uncertainty. I fight not as one who beats the air. Notice here, this is the race we're running. I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. That idea of disciplining our body, and bringing it into subjection is literally to beat it black and blue and make it our slave, which is not easy, and it's unpleasant for the time. In Hebrews 12 and verses 1 through 4, we're told to look to Jesus, the author and finish of our faith, as we run this race, laying aside the weights and the sins that so easily ensnare us. Notice verse 3 of that text. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become wearied and discouraged in your souls. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. There are a lot of people who have a negative view of Christianity because of this view some who call themselves Christians have of the gospel, thinking that it just makes life perfect, that that it just will take every single thing away in society and it's just going to make everything roses and sunshine. And they'll suggest that those people are fooling themselves. They just don't want to confront the reality of life. The gospel's purpose is not for us to escape all of those things, but for us to understand that all of those things will happen even to those who put their faith in Christ. And it gives us the tools to endure in our faith till the end where those things aren't a problem anymore. But there's rest and there's consolation in heaven. In addition to this, some view the gospel as an escape from responsibility. They view the gospel as something which gives an excuse for all the evil that we do because sin is innate, it's ingrained within us. We can't help but sin. God wouldn't ever expect for us to avoid sin and to actually live righteously. And so we're just going to put all of our responsibility on that ancient book and concepts we see in it and suggest that that's beyond me. God's already taken care of it. So all of these things have no consequences. All of these things have no bearing or weight on my life. I don't have any responsibility because Jesus did it for me. That's not the way the gospel is written. 
You see, the gospel doesn't just confront sin, it confronts the sinner. In Romans 8 and verse 3, it says that the law could, what it could not do because it was weak through the flesh. God did in sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin and condemned sin in flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. He's not simply talking about the sacrifice of Christ, which took care of the sin problem. He's talking about even the fact that Christ living sinlessly condemned sin and showed that it's possible for a man to choose not to sin. He's showing us that sin is terrible and there's never an excuse for it. And each and every person has the responsibility, especially as Christ is the perfect example, to walk after him in the steps that he walked. Christ's life doesn't say sin is okay, I've taken care of it. Christ's life says sin is not okay, that's why I never sinned. And that's why I'm having to die for your sins. Chapter 12 of Romans makes the application of the gospel plan that we read of in the first 11 chapters. And it says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, the grace of God, the sacrifice of Christ, based on that, present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. How does that look? Don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. The work of God was to destroy the works of the devil and to that end, bring us into the path of righteousness. In 1 John chapter 3 and verse 7, John addressed the problem of those who suggested that they could be in sin and darkness and they could still be right and in fellowship with God. He said that's not how it works. It doesn't take away responsibility, but it actually calls us to be more responsible. He says, little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. And for this person, purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed, that is his word, remains in him. And he cannot sin because he has been born of God. The gospel calls us to not sin and to walk the path of righteousness, to live that new life we alluded to this morning. We're raised up to walk in newness of life. And the newness of life is not an escape from responsibility, but it's a renewing to live more responsibly and for God in matters pertaining to Christ. In Galatians 5 and verse 13, the Apostle Paul says, You, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use the liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. He goes on to say, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. You have more responsibility and the power through the gospel to execute those responsibilities. The gospel not only requires responsibility now, but will hold all of us responsible in the end. There's no escape from that. In John 12 and verse 48, Jesus said, He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. And to that idea of judgment, in Romans 2 and verse 5, Paul wrote, in accordance, in accordance to the Jews who were sinful, in accordance with your hardness and impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each one according to his deeds. In other words, you're responsible for what's coming for you. You'll be held responsible for the sin you're committing. The gospel is not purposed toward giving us an escape from responsibility, but an escape from sin 
and the ability and responsibility to live righteously in Christ Jesus. I think another way some wrongly view the gospel, especially in this day and age, it's always been, but it's it's just on a, a different level of, of availability to see in this day and age of technology, is a lot of people view the gospel as a promotional tool to promote various things, including themselves. They'll pick up the good book and they'll act as if it's important to them and they'll quote a few scriptures, usually out of context, to, to influence its power in a negative way, in a way that it's not meant to be used to, to promote themselves or to promote some idea, to promote self and popularity, to promote a business or to promote politics. I think that's probably the one we're, we're most familiar with is, is those who are political activists and, and political leaders will oftentimes appeal to scripture and, and quote scripture in various contexts and, and out of its own context to appeal to what are called the evangelicals, to the people who do have an interest in spiritual matters. And they may not have any interest whatsoever in spiritual matters, but in order to, to gain that base and to gain that popularity, to gain those votes, if you will, they're going to use scripture as a promotional tool or as a business. Or I think one of the things that Christians most struggle with is the self-promotion on matters like social media, using the gospel to gain attention, maybe quoting a scripture or throwing up some catchy phrase or or posting a you know a picture of yourself with Bible and a cup of coffee, and there's nothing inherently wrong with that, but a lot of people do it just to be seen. Look at me. Look what I'm doing. That can't be further from the gospel's purpose. You know, the gospel has been abused in these various ways since the very beginning of the church. In 2 Peter 2 and verses 1 through 3, false teachers are the context. And notice what they're doing in their character. Peter warns that there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them and bring on themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their destructive ways because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. Now, here's their motives. By covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time, their judgment has not been idle and their destruction does not slumber. They have covetousness. They want your money. They want your things. They want your attention. And they exploit you. That's a strong word. They exploit you with this false gospel, deceptive words, they take that platform of the gospel as an opportunity to gain attention from others with pretense. There's no sincerity in their motives. The Corinthians dealt with some like this in Second Corinthians 11 and verse 20. He says, You put up with it if one brings you into bondage, devours you, takes from you, if one exalts himself, if one strikes you on the faith. So they claimed to be apostles, they claimed to be teachers of the gospel, and it was only to take advantage of others and promote themselves, to, to gain for themselves, to get followers for the sake of dishonest gain. Similarly, the Galatians dealt with false teachers. In Galatians 4 and verse 17, Paul warned that they zealously court you, but for no good. Yes, they want to exclude you, that you may be zealous for them, that is, for them and them alone. It is good to be zealous in a good thing always and not only when I am present with you. My little children, he says, for whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you. 
I would like to be present with you now and to change my tone for I have doubts about you. So what these false teachers in Galatia were doing was speaking bad about Paul, gaining the trust of these brethren in the churches of Galatia to exclude them from Paul so that they didn't follow Paul at all. They only followed them, the false teachers. For no good, they zealously court you. They simply want your attention. They simply want a following. The gospel is not a promotional tool in any way. The gospel actually speaks of the opposite of self-promotion. It speaks of self-denial. The gospel's purpose is to change the individual to such a degree where people see Christ, not Jeremiah. People see Christ, not so-and-so. The cross of Christ is the thing that any Christian should be hiding behind. Speaks of self-denial, not self-promotion. In Mark chapter 8 and verse 34 When Jesus had called the disciples to himself, he said, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? I think that when we do things like post a picture or a post on something like social media or we just... We just talk to someone about something or, or do something or send something to someone and it has a spiritual message to it. First and foremost, we've got to check our motives. And we've got to make sure that we're doing that to promote the gospel, to promote Christ, to save souls, to influence the ungodly toward the light and not to be seen as someone who, who wants attention, as someone who's better than everyone else. Look at me, I've read my Bible today. Well, that's what Christians are supposed to do. So why put it out there for the world to see, if not but just to gain some kind of attention? Again, I'm not saying that it's inherently wrong to to put that out there. Posting scriptures on Facebook and and social media and and sharing scriptures in various ways and, and putting scriptures up in various ways, like decorations and stuff, they can be very helpful tools to bring people's attention to the gospel and our own attention to the gospel and all of those kinds of things. But too many are guilty of viewing it as a way to promote themselves. And they'll be judged for that. Consider Matthew 6 and verses 1 through 7 that speaks of this very thing. When Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount says, Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds. The New American Standard Bible says righteousness. Take heed that you do not do your righteousness before men to be seen by them. He's not saying don't do your charitable deeds before men, period. He's saying don't do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be done in secret, and your father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. Likewise, he addresses prayer. When you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. And surely I say to you, they have their reward. But when you pray, go into your room. When you have shut your door, pray to your father who is in the secret place and your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. It's not to be seen by men. It's not to promote self. It's not to promote 
some agenda someone has or some cause that someone cares about. It's to promote Christ and it's to save souls. Fourthly, and along with this related to that idea of people viewing it as a promotional tool is people viewing it as a political or governmental platform of thinking of the gospel as the platform on which politics should be built as the platform on which government should be built. I'm not suggesting that Christians can't be interested in politics and government, that Christians can't even work in government, that Christians shouldn't have a a great interest in those matters and keep up with politics and that there's not something that is good to be done in this. But I'm talking about conflating religion with politics. Because what that does is it, it not only brings religion into politics, but politics and religion in neither one of those have that place as the scripture reveals. And this is not to suggest that sometimes in politics and government that moral matters are not brought up that would require our attention as Christians, like matters such as abortion or homosexual marriage and and other kind of, of moral matters. But when we see those things come up, we don't need to view them as a political discussion or quarrel. It's a spiritual one. This involves God and his word and sin. And so we don't view it as a political matter. We view it as a spiritual matter. And so the way we're going to attack it is not through politics. We're going to be able to attack it through the gospel and living by the gospel and obeying the gospel and spreading the gospel. Politics has no place nor has ever had a place in Christianity. And what we should understand as Christians is that political matters pale in comparison to matters of the faith. Consider this, that the gospel is not addressed toward any mass of people or any government. The gospel is addressed to each individual person. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse 12, I think we see this in the life of Paul, when he says that he thanks God because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Notice these pronouns. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent man, I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly and in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. He doesn't say he came into the world to save governments, to promote political revolutions. He said he came to save sinners for this reason he obtained mercy that in me first Christ might show all longsuffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. It's to the individual, not to the masses. Consider that if the gospel was intended to incite change in politics and governments throughout the world, then Jesus had it completely wrong. In Matthew chapter 22, we read something very interesting. When those people came to test Jesus, one of the first questions asked, tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now we step back a little bit and we're very familiar with the kind of government that Jesus was born into and suffered under throughout his life. It wasn't what might be called a Judeo-Christian country. It wasn't a country that was fit for people serving God without fear of harm and outer molestation. It was a government under the Caesar who is a God king and one that eventually came up that hated Christians so much, hated God so much that he started killing Christians just because they were Christians. That's the kind of government we read about that Christians were under in the New Testament. 
And this is what Jesus said about taxes under that government. He says, why do you test me, you hypocrites? Show me the tax money. They brought it to him. He said, whose image and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. And he said to them, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. You mean we pay taxes to a government that is so anti-God and anti-Christian? It doesn't even come close to being anything, bearing any semblance to what God would have for a person to be. Jesus said, yes. And you can do that and remain faithful. Consider that Jesus, what Jesus told Pilate in the praetorium when he said, are you the king of the Jews? And he went on to say, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from them. He said, are you a king? Then he said, you rightly say that I am king for this cause. I was born and this cause. I've come into the world that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth. Here's my voice to the truth. He's he's king and reigns through the truth. It's a spiritual kingdom. They're spiritual matters. The gospel's purpose is not political has nothing to do with the governments on earth. That's not to say that God doesn't rule in the kingdoms of men, and that doesn't say that God doesn't have expectations and that governments don't have responsibilities before God or a purpose as they're ordained by God. But the gospel is not meant to revolutionize any kind of world order. Romans 13 and verse 1, it tells us what the role of the government is and the Christian under the government, any government, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. There is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good, but if you, if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Again, this is addressed to the Romans in Rome under this emperor, this God king, evil man, Caesar. And he's telling them that's what the government is for and you submit to it. Obviously, we ought to obey God rather than men. But if it was God's purpose through the gospel to change governments, you had better believe that governments would be being changed by the gospel. That's not necessarily happening, though. The individual Christian can remain faithful under the most tyrannical and ungodly bodies of government. In Revelation 2 and verse 10, the church in Smyrna is given encouragement to face persecution and endure it, saying to the extent of, do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation 10 days. Be faithful until death. That is to the point of dying for the cause of Christ. And I will give you the crown of life. We need to recognize through this that the greatest influences the Christian has is not through getting into politics, not arguing politics with others, not having your life become so consumed with political discussion that you neglect the spiritual role that you're to play as a Christian. It's not even through the voting ballot. It's through living faithfully in Christ, spreading the good news and praying for those who are in a leadership role. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus talked about how we're the salt of the earth, we're the light of the world, and we're to do these things that people may see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. In First Timothy 2 and verse 1, Paul says, Therefore I exert first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life 
in all godliness and reverence. We live godly in Christ Jesus. We spread the good news and we pray for those who are in authority. Those are the most powerful tools we have. Gospel has nothing to do with politics or government, but with changing the lives of individuals in devotion to Christ. And lastly, some view the gospel as if it's a personalized life plan for them. And I think that we can say to a certain degree, we could rightly say if we define the terms and explain what we mean, that yeah, the gospel is a personal life plan for Jeremiah. Because it's addressed to individuals, isn't it? It's addressed to to men who have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's to change our lives. It's to give us direction. Certainly it's a personal life plan in that regard, but some think as if that it's perfectly and specifically tailored to them in a different way that it's tailored to other people, and they view it through the secular perspective. It's going to give me the answer to all my questions from from where I should work to to where I should go to school to, to secular matters and various decisions I make from day to day in regard to things that don't even have anything to do with the eternal matters that are most important. And what this will do is it'll lead down the path of interpreting Scripture through eisegesis. That is, I interpret it through what I want to see it as. I read this Scripture not to find out what this writer is telling us, the Holy Spirit through them, but I read this Scripture to find out what is personally my tailored plan for my life. And inevitably, great harm is done. Really, this claim of of the Gospel being a personalized plan for me by God is actually a facade. Really what it's about is I want to look at it to see what I want to do. I'm going to see it through the lens of what I think is best. I'm going to lift it out of context. I'm going to apply it where I want to apply it, not apply it where I don't want to apply it. People talk about their personal path to a better and new, revolutionized, more successful me and future. And that's not what the gospel is about. Not at all. Consider that it's addressed to all. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, the Corinthians are condemned by Paul or reproved by Paul, rather, when they had this idea that they didn't have to submit to the regulations pertaining to spiritual gifts. And Paul says this, Did the word of God come originally from you, or was it to you only that it reached? If anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things which I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. But if anyone is ignorant, let him be ignorant. He's saying that this applies to you too. You don't get to do it your way. You think you're the only church that has spiritual gifts. You think you're the only church who has the instruction of the Holy Spirit through the gospel. You better think again. What I'm writing to you, he's saying, is the commandments of the Lord, and you've got to submit to him just like this church over here. And this idea, if anyone thinks he's ignorant, let him be ignorant, it's translated in the New American Standard Bible. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. It's not about you only. It's the same plan for every person. All of sin and fall short of the glory of God. And if the gospel is the salvation for everyone through the power of God, then it means the same thing for every person. The gospel doesn't speak of many different plans. Plans that don't even relate to one another, but it has a series of ones that we should be unified in. Paul in Ephesians 4 called for the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, and he sets the foundation in verses 4 through 6, because there is one body and one Spirit, just as you are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. One, not many, One that appeals to you just like it appeals to this guy you don't even know from Adam and are completely different kinds of people. It's the same 
message directed in the same way toward each person. Really, all the gospel speaks about are two paths that each and every person who has ever lived, ever will live, and ever does live are on. You're on one or the other, but there's only two. There's not a personalized path for you. There's the path that is wide and it leads to destruction and many go in by it. And then there's the narrow gate that's difficult. It leads to life and there are a few who find it. There's not the path for Jeremiah and the path for for Howard and the path for Russ. There's the path for the righteous and the path for the unrighteous. And you get to choose. And that path for righteousness for me is no different than the path of righteousness for you. God holds us to the same standard. He gives us the same plan. And the danger is, if we view it through this lens of it being personalized for me, then there are going to be things we come across that are kind of difficult to hear. And if it's supposed to be personalized for me, and I don't like to hear that, I don't like the sound of that, then it's probably best for me to just ignore it, because it must not be addressed toward me. But that's not how the gospel works. The gospel requires the same thing for everyone. Ultimately, God's plan for everyone as it's seen in Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 13, is to fear God and keep His commandments, for this is man's all. And the reason is that God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. If we're going to be benefited in the way the gospel has as an offer to benefit us, then we have to take it as it is. We've got to know it, and we've got to understand how it works and its purpose. And if we try to use it in a way that is even slightly different than what it says its purpose is, it will bring us to utter destruction. And we've got to realize that as we see the differences in this religious climate today and stand up for the truth and never waver from it, understanding that as good as that may sound, if it's not from God, then it's not good at all. We need to be willing to bring other people into this understanding of what the purpose of the gospel actually is and to warn them about the false and warped views people have that are ultimately going to lead to their destruction. We want to invite you to respond to the gospel call this evening if you haven't done so already. The purpose of the gospel is to save you from your sins, to save your soul from death, to give you the hope of eternal life in heaven through the blood of Christ. That's the purpose of the gospel. And what the gospel requires is a repentance of those sins, the confession of Christ before men as the Son of God, and showing that belief through obeying the gospel by being baptized into Christ for the remission of sins rising up to walk faithfully. If you have done that, but there's any other spiritual need we can assist you with this evening, the invitation is extended to you as well. Come forward while we stand and sing the song that was selected.